thank you so much for being on the podcast. No, it's my pleasure. So going straight into it, why did you want to become a lawyer in the first place? So in the first place, I'm not sure I really did want to become a lawyer. I didn't make up my mind about becoming a lawyer until literally the very last moment, the, the moment that I was graduating from U.S undergraduate college and one has to decide then after four years what one's actually going to do. I, for want of anything else to do, for want of any viable options, decided to go to law school because that put off the decision about what I'd really do when I grew up for at least an, another three years. In retrospect, though, looking back, it was it was a, a wise choice. It wasn't by virtue of wisdom that I had at the time, but in retrospect, it, it turned out to be wise. Being a lawyer has been, from a pre professional perspective, one of the most exciting, interesting, fulfilling, rewarding things that I could have done and that I think many young people could do. Why so rewarding? It's rewarding in, in multiple respects. Most importantly, if if it's done well, if, if you're a a good lawyer and if you have the good fortune to have the opportunity to do that, you can make a difference, a real difference in the lives of ordinary people, many ordinary people. Law, in a sense, um, is, is larger than all of us. It's larger than life. It, the law, the common law in, in this country and in England goes back tens of centuries and provides the framework in which we all live, work, prosper, and contributing to that, contributing to the development, the application of the law, the rule of law, is enormously fulfilling. But you're saying, in many ways, it was a fluke that you're here? <laughs> I suspect if, if, if many are honest about where they've ended up here, ended up at, at the end of their careers, there are a number of flukes along the way. I think my decision to, to go to law school was by no means the only fluke in, in my career. One has to ask, having become a lawyer, what sort of lawyer does one then choose to be? What aspect of the law does one pursue? Law, like other aspects of business life, life generally, has become increasingly specialized and one needs to choose some, some field of law. Is it family law? Is it criminal law? Is it tax law? I, for better or for worse, interested in international affairs, chose international arbitration, the resolution of commercial, business, political disputes between companies from different countries and different countries. Choosing that was in many ways a fluke. I hadn't started out thinking I would do that, but having chosen it, or perhaps it chose me, it's, it has proved enormously fulfilling. So, so, so to, the, to say that the mind isn't necessarily specifically trained in law, is just listening, isn't a lawyer, how would you describe your job to the layman? What, what is uh, international arbitration? International arbitration is the resolution of disputes. Two companies disagree about what their contract means. A company disagrees with a country about how it's been treated. Two countries disagree with each other about where their border lies. Those disputes then might be submitted to a national court, an English court, a US court, a Chinese court. 
Instead, most businesses, many countries today, prefer to submit those disputes to what's called an arbitrator or group of arbitrators, often three or five. The parties, the businesses and the states choose to do that because it enables them to choose the person, the persons, who will then resolve their dispute. And they have greater confidence that if they're involved in selecting the tribunal, those who will decide, the decision will ultimately be a fairer, a better decision, a more informed decision, a more neutral decision. I act as counsel. You ask, what is my job? My, I act as counsel and also in some cases as arbitrator. I assist parties, businesses, states in resolving their disputes before these arbitrators who they have chosen. And the decision of those arbitrators about how the dispute will be resolved, the so-called award, is more final, more binding than any national court judgment by virtue of international arbitration treaties and laws around the world. That sounds like a, a ginormous responsibility. So obviously they, they come to you because they trust you. So how did you build that trust to get to this level? I think one builds that sort of trust just as in other walks of life, whether a, a medical doctor, an accountant, a cab driver, one builds trust there. One delivers good results in the past or the best results that the facts will permit through hard work and, and diligence and, to be honest, a little bit of luck. When one performs well, future clients hear about that. and come as well to, to trust you. I've had the good fortune of, of clients who have been enormously loyal, excellent clients, and by virtue of, of their good word, I've, I've had the good fortune to, to build the reputation that I have. What is an excellent client? How, how, how do you define that? An excellent client is a client who cooperates with you, demands the most from you, expects you to perform. Unfortunately, today in the day of email and mobile phones, 24-7, uh, the clients, both excellent and otherwise, expect you to be on call all day, all, all night, quite, quite literally. An excellent client, though, is one who is available herself or, or himself and who openly and transparently provides you all the information, all the support that you need in order to, to do your job properly. And one who, who works with you, who's demanding but, but also cooperative in trying to make sure that your work on her or his behalf is the best that you can do. It's a client who wants excellence in, in your performance of your duties in, in the case. They expect everything from you but they try to make your work as excellent as it can be. So what then, what then drives you if, if you're inundated by the need for a reply uh, or all this weight on you, how do you, uh, how do you keep going? I think I keep going the way that, that many people in other fields keep going as well. It's the love of succeeding, a love of doing a job well. The, the satisfaction that comes when you've delivered an excellent opening or performed an, an excellent cross-examination in a contested hearing is, is impossible to describe. Doing something well for a client, performing well in front of a tribunal, handling a series of difficult questions as, as well as one can, 
is, is what drives me. The success that one feels, the satisfaction that one feels of after having performed well, done your job well, served the client well. But what, what is that satisfaction? Is it that you kind of dominated yourself and your concerns and the problems? Or what is that satisfaction? It's a mixture of, of things. Part of it is that. Part of it is, and I think any counsel who's honest will, will agree, you have butterflies in, in your stomach when you go in to, Still. to open a case. Still, after how many years? And dominating, as you say, those those challenges that you face from a personal perspective is rewarding. Satisfying a client and, and a tribunal as well, those that will decide the case, seeing that, that they feel that you've done a good job, the best job that one can do, also is enormously rewarding. In, in, in a larger, perhaps more retrospective sense, feeling that you've contributed to the resolution, the successful, peaceful resolution of the dispute and help develop the rule of law, perhaps in a small way, sometimes in, in a larger way, is enormously satisfying. You feel that you've done something more than yourself. But how do you maintain serenity and calm when all these kind of mini explosions or dramas are going off? How do you keep going? Sometimes you don't. Sometimes, sometimes you don't maintain calm. Um, you certainly hear from opposing counsel's room shouts or things really? being thrown about and, and the like. Not, not everybody can remain serene, as, as you put it, in, in the face of, of enemy fire. That said, having done this, having been through difficult hearings and dark nights when everything seems to be going wrong, gives you some sense that although things might not look so great just at the moment, there will be a dawn, things will look better. It enables you to put things in perspective and to see, although there may be setbacks, there may be battles that are lost, there's a, there's a larger war that still can be won and in order to do that, in order to prevail, one has to remain calm, one has to at least pretend to remain serene. But what does a dark night look like then? A dark night looks like a witness who told you she was going to say one thing and then turns up on the day to tell you she's in fact going to say the opposite. It might alternatively be a client who's told you that all the documents that are in their files are positive and none of them say something that would be damning to your case and then as you go through the documents, it in fact develops that they are not so favorable, that they present an unflattering or unfavorable picture. A dark night might be a tribunal question which suggests, perhaps wrongly suggests, that they've already made up their mind about some key aspect of the case and all your efforts on that issue have been in vain. In all those circumstances, you see in the moment something that looks very dark and you have to deal with that. You have to figure out how to contain the damage, to change the tribunal's mind, to put a document or a witness in context to enable you to continue to present the case in the best way that you can. But I suppose you're coming up against frustrations constantly, aren't you? Is that the nature of the beast? Absolutely. You have dark, you have dark moments in, in almost any case. Nothing ever goes either entirely to plan or entirely favorably. And, and part of being a lawyer, I suppose part of being a cab driver or 
a business person is is dealing with those those reverses those those problems and and figuring out how you overcome them so how do you deal with those frustrations you know as a as a normal human being how do you sort of can you separate yourself from your work uh, do you go running or something what do you do to kind of get perspective i think it's hard if you're going to to perform this job well excellently to separate yourself from it very much you have to you have to really love what you do you have to care about the results you have to enjoy the process you have to odd as it may seem enjoy going through documents and finding either the smoking gun that wins your case or the difficulty that you need to preempt in the future you have to enjoy preparing late at night before the closing the PowerPoint or the script that you're going to use in in your oral submissions not everybody does but I think in order to excel at this at at being an international lawyer an international arbitration lawyer you really need do need to invest yourself completely and and unconditionally that said I do think there are other things in life and you have to live them as fully as as you do your job for myself going to the gym every day is absolutely essential you have to find a physical release from the mental exertions that goes on all day i also take my scuba mask diving mask with me wherever i go in the world and if there's an opportunity to go diving i i take that opportunity as well that must just feel like freedom complete freedom a completely different planet a completely different <laughs> universe a completely different environment and i think when you throw yourself 100 110 percent into to work it's important to find to find a release somewhere else when when the day is done if it if in fact it is was it, that, that was going to be my next question how do you even carve up your day given that you might have been up to all hours the night before and but you still need to go to the gym. So how do you, what does your schedule look like? Um, how do you cope? Every day is different and the day usually is out of your control. Some days you'll know in advance what's happening. There'll be a hearing that's scheduled for the entire week. You'll have negotiated carefully the hearing schedule. You'll know when you need to make your opening submissions, your closing submissions, which witnesses and in which order you'll need to examine. Those weeks are, are predictable in, in some sense. They're also highly unpredictable because hearings are, are in their very nature unpredictable. Witnesses don't show up. They don't provide the answers you expected. They say new things. The tribunal asks new questions. Other days, though, outside the hearing context are almost entirely to the winds of chance. You come in in the morning and you have no idea what emails may have shown up on your computer or your phone with requests for new advice or new problems that you need to deal with clients may show up unannounced on your literally on your doorstep in your reception room and your day really moves with the the flow of of those inputs from from outside if left to my own devices i like to try to keep the morning to quiet time not phone calls instead looking at papers as one would have said in the past today 
it's much more often the computer than papers, but nonetheless, don't, don't thinking... Don't it's not newspapers. Don't exactly, papers. looking at documents. No, precisely, looking at documents, looking at, at exhibits in, in arbitration, contracts that someone wants advice about, international treaties or laws to try to understand what, what they mean for, for a client. And it, from my own personal perspective, having quiet time to... To, to read and to reflect, to think about what you've read is, is essential. It's very difficult today. The phone, the emails, um, the messages that you get um, literally come in around the clock and finding quiet time like that for yourself and also for your clients because at the end of the day the documents that you're reading, the, the messages that you're answering are for them. Finding time like that is, is essential. It's also difficult. So what time are you up in the morning? How does that work? My day is highly unpredictable. The day, of course, we, we, we sort of assume because we're sitting here in, in London in, in Mayfair that, that my day would be here. In fact, most of my days aren't here. Most of my days, 150 or so at least a year, are in some other place, whether it's Singapore, New York, Hong Kong, Switzerland, what have you. And the day, therefore, starts at a very different time every I imagine, day. I imagine the silver lining is the peace you get on the plane to, to do work. That's exactly right. You can you, you have some peace and quiet on the plane, assuming you're not sleeping. I tend, I suspect, like most most uh, litigation lawyers, arbitration lawyers, to get less sleep than than I would like. Six hours of sleep is is a good thing, but it's not something you always achieve. Wow. So you're you, on average five. Between really? five and six. And are you working or are you just kind of trying to fit your life in and then squeeze that sleep in? Is it, is it 19 hours of work? Uh, sometimes it feels that way. During hearings and preparing heavy written submissions, it is that way. Often it isn't that bad. One, one, one works, one certainly works 10, 10 to 12 hours a day. Um, not eight hours a day, 10 to 12 hours a day in the ordinary course. Um, crisis moments, um, stressful times bring, bring even more hours. So is it important to, to be the best, to sacrifice, to pay the price in sleep, in terms of free time? Do you really have to pay that price? I think you do. Einstein famously said, of course, that 99% of genius is hard work. And I think that's true of many other things. The, the more you put in, the more you achieve, the more comes out. So how much of this is intelligence? I think intelligence is, is hugely important. It's not just a question of working hard, it's also a question of, of working smart. And I think being able, especially in, in the law, being able to understand what the law is being able to apply it to a particular set of facts, being able to perceive how the law might, in fact, not address a particular situation or how, even if it does, it doesn't do so in a way really consistent with the rest of the law as it stands today is absolutely essential. And there, both knowledge of what the law is and intelligence in understanding how it works and gets applied is is utterly essential and the smarter you are the better you are but it's not only intelligence there are other 
critically important attributes or, or faculties. Um, at the end of the day, cases are fought by people and decided by people. Perhaps someday artificial intelligence will will replace that, although I'm highly skeptical about that that proposition. At least today, though, and for the foreseeable future, it's, it's people, men and women, decide cases. Men and women get into disputes and understanding, therefore, men and women, understanding what motivates them, what they find attractive, what they find not attractive, what repels them, is critically important. And that's not just a question of intelligence. Reading a tribunal involves reading body language and nonverbal cues just as much as it involves understanding the written words that, that they've sent to you in a procedural order or, or a letter. Understanding what it is troubles them, what they want, how to persuade them is at the end of the day essential. Interacting with clients, having them trust you is, is something that, that doesn't really involve intelligence. It's a different set of human, human capabilities. In what way would you say that this job has allowed you to see the best and worst of people? You really do see the best and worst of people in, in disputes. Disputes bring out people's emotions, sometimes for, for the better, for the best, and sometimes for, for the worst. You see people who, in the face of adversity, rise and can be both selfless and, and honest, uh, demonstrate integrity and, and courage in, in the face of difficult circumstances. A, a, a government representative in a case where he feels or she feels they're losing something essential for, for their country can, in the face of that sort of, of bleak assessment rise to the occasion and demonstrate leadership and, and courage. Conversely, you can see people, you see witnesses, you see, you see client representatives who, faced with adversity, lack integrity, choose to, to dissemble, choose to, to conceal things. And you, you can see people both through that kind of behavior, but also, also through emotional hostility, um, demonstrate what in some ways is, is the worst of human nature. I think the, the character of disputes brings out heightened emotions. You're a professor. How did you, how have you managed to combine academia with a profession? I mean, did you, did you study on the side? Did you go that route first and then move this way? How did you do it? That's a, that's a great question. I think it's an important question also for both younger people who, who want to be lawyers in the future and, and for, for lawyers in, in other fields, not, not dispute resolution, not, not just international arbitration. I think academics and law are natural partners and the academic aspects of my career have benefited my practice, my work as counsel and also as arbitrator immeasurably. Conversely, I think my work as counsel and as arbitrator has, has benefited my, my academic work equally immeasurably. International arbitration, like other areas of the law, is, is changing, it's developing, it's attempting to ultimately 
provide a better product and a better rule of law, understanding how the system works, which is ultimately an academic undertaking, is critical to doing that both as counsel and as arbitrator. To that end, I've, I've written a number of books, a treatise on international commercial arbitration, case books on international law and the like, which, which in my view have, have made me um, a much better advocate, a, a much better adjudicator. I often say as well that the best way to learn something is to teach it. One can, as a student, nod um, cooperatively and, and obediently as the professor takes you through some aspect of the law. In fact, it's much better to learn that aspect by having to take the students through it. So how did, how did you do the academia route? Did you, did you focus on that 100% and then turn into profession? I mean, how did you do both at the same time? I don't understand where you'd even find the time. That's a, that, that goes back to my earlier answer about how I ended up being a lawyer largely as, as a fluke. <laughs> after, after graduating from, from law school, I, I spent five months or so uh, at, at a law firm. Uh, and, and during that period of time, very rapidly concluded that this was the last thing in the world that I wanted to do. I looked at the more senior lawyers around me and thought, I don't know if I'll ever be able to get in the positions that they're in. I don't know if I'll ever be able to survive in the competitive atmosphere of a large law firm to be promoted, to become a partner. But even if I could, I don't want to be like them. And so I left the law firm and went to teach, teach full time uh, at, at, at a law school. The law school generously let me teach precisely what, what I wanted to teach, international arbitration and litigation, constitutional law, public international law. And I learned enormously from a full year's tenure as um, a member of, of a law faculty. I, I studied, I, I worked, I wrote. I wrote my first book during that, that, that one year um, teaching stint. And by the end of the year, I began to look back on the time that I had spent at the law firm a little more positively. And so I, in fact, went back to that same law firm I'd left <laughs> a year ago. They, they, for better or for worse, they, they took me back. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm still here. <laughs> um, uh, the time that I spent in academics, though, could not have been better spent. It, from both a personal perspective, it's enormously rewarding to, to, teach, to teach law students, to teach younger, younger students, um, but, but also from a selfish perspective for, for myself, professionally, because it gave me both the tools, the knowledge of the law, but also the credibility. I, I had been a professor. Um, in order to, to do the work of a lawyer in a much better, a much much more effective way than I had before I left. So you, how long have you been practicing this field, this, this particular corner of law? Uh, I, uh, I hesitate to say, but uh, coming on 30 years at this moment. So the moment. context you must have 
must be encyclopedic. If I could remember all the things <laughs> I've learned, it would indeed be, but um, it probably, um, I've probably learned a fair bit over the years. So if you could go back and speak to your younger self, you know, what would you, what would you say? What advice would you give? I wish I could. That's, that's an excellent, um, that would be an excellent opportunity to have. I think, I think I would say every moment is precious. Treat every opportunity, whether it's the opportunity to pitch for a new client, whether it's the opportunity to draft a brief in some case, whether it's the opportunity to participate in the interview of a witness as if it was the most important thing you were ever going to do. Treat every, take every opportunity. Don't say no to any case, no matter how big or little, how boring or exciting, how important or not. Take every case and throw yourself into it with, with everything you have because those are the only chances you're going to get. And the more you do, the better you will be, the more you will learn. And you have one chance at this. You don't get to push the replay button or the reset button. You get one chance at what you're going to do. Make every single moment, every chance of it count. And even at your experience level, is there someone in your industry that you look up to, if that's possible, or even outside your industry, you look at them and think, and they, they're like a pillar of strength for you? I don't know. I think, I'm not sure there's, there's someone like that, for better or for worse, either in what I do or, or somewhere else. What, what I do look up to, though, in a way, is children. If I look at the innocence of children, joyful in their play or diligent in their first coloring exercise, the unconditional commitment that they have, the sheer joy and enthusiasm they bring to what they do, I think that is what I look up to as a pillar of strength, finding a way to capture that, that love of life that, and in my professional sense, that love of what you do professionally. And do you think you've captured that? I think I have. That's fantastic. I said my last question is then, what would, in your mind, what does the world's greatest lawyer look like as an abstract concept? The world's greatest lawyer is someone who advances the rule of law for others in all that she or he does. Someone who both serves his or her clients, who in doing that makes our legal system, makes the rule of law a better reality, and who loves what he or she does in the process of doing that. Professor Bourne, thank you so much for your time. It's been an honor and a privilege. Thank you. Thank you.